Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Jarrett, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a reoccurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, if you feel inclined. So check it out. Our guest today is Jessica Robichaud. Jessica is a PhD student in the Cook Lab at Carleton University. Her research focuses on permit spawning aggregations in the Florida Keys. She also completed her master's in the Cook Lab, studying the overwinter ecology of freshwater turtles. Before graduate school, Jessica attended the University of Toronto, where she studied biodiversity and conservation biology and environmental science. Her past work includes fish community surveys in freshwater and marine environments, invasive species detection and management, and some marine mammal physiology work. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you for having me. All right. So to get things started, uh, what got you interested in the field of fisheries and fisheries research in general? I always spent a lot of time outside growing up, um, cottages and camping with my family. And I always liked being outdoors and I liked catching fish off the dock and hanging out with my dad, like boating around and doing things like that. And so I think in my third year of undergrad one of my um best friends who is also a phd student actually at the university of toronto um lauren she and i were looking for research opportunities at u of t that we could kind of get into and so we had both applied to this program that was doing turtle work in algonquin um and we neither one of us got into that one and then we had then decided to apply to this fisheries one that was like a marine mammal physiology and fish in the Bay of Fundy course and like research excursion that was taking place in Comoville, Nova Scotia. And we both got into that. And so the two of us and four other girls went out to the Bay of Fundy for a month in June. And we did a whole bunch of different field work and fisheries oriented science stuff. So we were doing biopsying different fish. We were doing winter flounder. Some of the other girls were doing alewife. And then we took part in a seal stranding necropsy and then we were doing brook trout surveys and eelgrass bed surveying and so being on the water and being out there I was like okay like this is super fun like I really like fish and then from there it kind of just spiraled like I got a job feeding guppies in a behavioral ecology lab and then I got a job at DFO and like I had kept my options open to doing you know like anything outdoors whether it was turtles or birds or I had done like applied for land surveying jobs but like I liked the fish And then I guess like I did my master's on turtles and I liked it. But then moving forward, I was like, I'm definitely more interested in fish and fisheries research and that type of aquatic ecology as opposed to turtles and just water sampling and things like that. That's a great story that you were able to incorporate something that you enjoyed so much growing up into what you're doing now into the future. Yeah, it's, it's super nice to be able to do the things that you like to do put so much time and so much of your life into it. Uh, so I noticed that you did your undergrad at the University of Toronto, where you did an undergrad thesis. 
So how did this opportunity come about? Was it a requirement at U of T that you needed to do a thesis? Or was this something that you chose to do? It was something I chose to do. I did my undergrad over the course of five years. And so a little bit of that, I was watching my peers and seeing what they were up to and like kind of how they progressed through. And a lot of people in my fourth year had like taken on an undergrad research opportunity. And so um, it is a thesis um, at U of T. It's not required. You can just do it for the extra kind of um, interest. A lot of people use it as like a stepping stone to get into like a master's or a PhD program. But you do it and you take a course. And so I was super interested in getting involved with that. And I had been connected to Dr. Don Jackson. I had taken his urban ecology course, again, with my friend Florin, who's actually a graduate student in his lab now. And so I knew that he did aquatic research. And there's not a ton of people doing fisheries research at U of T that were available, at least for me to do this. So I talked to Don. And then he connected me with um, Cindy Chu, who is a research scientist now at DFO. And so using some of her old data from when she worked with MNR before she made the transition, we took all of that data and came up with an undergraduate research project. I looked at aquatic invasive species in different lakes and kind of matched lakes that had invasive species and lakes that didn't have invasive species and looked at sport fish size and catch per unit effort. And it didn't pan out entirely because my last year of undergrad got cut short by COVID. So I had some conclusions that I was able to present for like a research fair, but nothing big came out of it just because we ran out of time and resources with the whole world transitioning to online. But it was still a really great opportunity to work with big data and get my hands on some actual analysis uh, before going to graduate school. And so what were some of the invasive species and sport fishes that you looked at? We were looking at um, walleye was one of the sport fish and bass. And then the invasives included round gobies and zebra mussels and rainbow smelt and things like that, um, which are kind of standard fare for invasives in Ontario right now. And so what was, if you had to say what the major finding of your research was, I know you said it got cut short with COVID and, and things like that, but there was one main takeaway. Smallmouth bass were doing pretty well in the lakes that had invasive species. I think it's it, that's interesting in itself, maybe that they're utilizing the invasives as a new food source, but otherwise there was nothing, nothing too conclusive about the work for I did for that one. That's still a great conclusion. <laughs> so after graduating from U of T, you moved on to graduate school at Carleton University, where you did research on freshwater turtles. So before we dive into talking about your master's research, I have to ask, how did you go from fish to turtles? That's a good question. Um, so because I was transitioning from undergrad to graduate school during COVID, Steve had called me and asked me basically if I had any interest in this turtle project because they were looking for a graduate student who had previous fieldwork experience. And at that point I had had I had done this field course that I had gotten a ton of research experience in. I had spent a summer working with DFO, which gave me a lot of fieldwork experience as well. And he basically just asked if I had any interest in the turtles. And because I, I had said pretty clearly that I was interested in working with fish. And he just said, you know, there's an opportunity to do a bunch of fieldwork. Um, we need someone who's pre-trained basically to handle field stuff who can spend, you know, a month mostly alone 
um, with one other person to do all this. And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. Like, <laughs> it'll, it'll be good. Like, it seemed like a really cool opportunity. The project itself was super cool, too. I got to kind of use an approach in a system that hadn't been used before and do something that was like a little innovative, which was really exciting for me. And the other part of the requirements was that I was going to be swimming in really cold water. And luckily I like outside and I like winter and cold. So, you know, swimming in October, November, and then April didn't scare me that much. So I thought, you know, great time to take the opportunity and try something new. And also maybe I really do love turtles more than fish. Um, or maybe it'll solidify that I am a fish person. So I said, yeah, why not? That's kind of how I ended up doing that project. Right. And so tell us what that project involved and, and some of the field work that you did. So I started in the fall of 2020 and I went out and I snorkeled and caught 40 turtles at a um, known hibernation site with Dr. Greg Bilte, who's also at Carleton University. And he and I stayed at the Queen's University Biology Station and we caught 40 turtles. And then we tagged each of them with an accelerometer. And we put, attached it to the carapace with some, with some epoxy. And then from there, we used the accelerometer data to record their movement, their depth use, and the temperature profile of where they were. And so we let the turtles go back to their hibernation site. And then in the spring, we recaptured them. They were also given a radio tag. So we used radio technology to track them down in the lake and find them. And then we popped off their accelerometers. And then I used all the data basically to look at what sort of behaviors they exhibited during the winter when the ice came on and then when the ice until when the ice came off. Because the we were working on northern map turtles and they aggregate at a specific spawning site every year and they show long-term fidelity to that site as well. So they will return every season. But this not really known what they do and if they move and what sort of behaviors go on under the ice. So this gave us some insight into how they survived the winter. Oh, that's super interesting. And what what were some of the findings that you had? So the big one was that they moved continuously throughout the winter. There had been some previous observations of different studies in different places that people had gone under the ice and noticed that they would move. So ours was the first to like fully record it continuously throughout the winter and sort of get that quantitative data that shows they're moving. And then northern map turtles have very dramatic size differences between the males and the females. So we noticed behavioral differences in the females and the males. The males moved more than the females did. They had a different preference or a different use, I should say, for depth in the site and different temperatures. And so it's likely related to different physiological needs of oxygen body size would affect that and perhaps also males using it as an opportunity to look for partners for the spring when they start mating but yeah that was the big takeaway was that they move continuously which is not really seen in many turtles at this point not a lot of people have had the opportunity to record or watch movement continuously over the winter but it doesn't seem like all turtle species scuttle around at their hibernation sites quite like northern map turtles do I was just going to ask, did you expect that they would be moving around throughout the whole winter? Was that something you thought was going to happen when you started this research? Yeah, it was kind of a thought because previous observations had said that they do. I wasn't entirely sure if it was if they would move on their own or if it was more of these observations that seemed them moving around because 
they had been disturbed, but when we left them alone for five months, they, they kept moving the whole time. Very interesting. So you are currently doing your PhD at Carleton and are supervised by Dr. Steve Cook and Dr. Jacob Brownscombe. In your bio, I mentioned that your research is based in the Florida Keys. How awesome is that? It's super nice. Yeah, I really, I really can't complain about that. For your research, how often do you get to go down to the Keys and do field work? Oh boy, um, I spent coming off of having been there for almost a month and a half right now, and I have to go back just because we didn't finish um, getting all the tags out. The fish weren't cooperating quite like I hoped. But right now, because we're doing acoustic receiver downloads, it's pretty much every six months we have to pop down for a week and at least and do change the receiver batteries and service them and things like that. That sounds great to me. (laughs) So now that we've established that you have probably one of the best locations for field work, tell us about your research projects. We know location. What sort of species are you looking at? What specifically are you focusing on with them? Um, So permit are a popular sport fish in Florida. And, you know, they're one of the species that kind of supports the $8 billion saltwater recreational fishing industry that exists in Florida and the Florida Keys. And permit are commonly angled on the flats, but people also target them at offshore reefs and wrecks. And it's pretty crazy when you go to the reefs and wrecks there's you'll go out and there's tons of boats around like all on top of the same rack or reef and we're all angling the same school of permits out there and another important thing is they aggregate at these sites because it's part of their spawning behavior so they school up at these certain sites that they like and they broadcast spawn in schools and so you know when they're out there they're focusing on spawning and they're kind of in a big ball so they're also easier to see and to target that um, makes it kind of a really interesting angling experience when you're offshore. And so in recent years, um, local guides and anglers reported that there was a decline in permit on the flats of Florida and the Florida Keys. And so from 2016 to 2019, permit were caught and tagged in research that was conducted by Jake Brownscombe and funded by Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And this collection of data helped identify basically some key spawning sites along the Florida reef track, which also happened to be pretty popular angling sites. And so from this research, we also saw high, really high connectivity between the offshore spawning sites and the flats fishery. And so, you know, it made some sense that maybe if there's heavy fishing pressures at these offshore spawning sites, not as many fish are making it back to the flats where others are looking to angle them. And one of these offshore spawning sites was called Western Dry Rocks. Uh, 70% of the fish on the near shore flats spawned at this one particular site. So that was kind of a critical spawning location for these flats fish. And then this information led to the extension of the permit fishing harvest restriction. So between April and July, permit harvest was fully prohibited in the South Florida. You could still angle them, but it was strictly catch and release. And then from there, another study was conducted by somebody else in the cook lab, Pete Holder, And his work kind of showed that catch and release angling for permit was not sustainable either because in some locations, as many as 30% of the fish being caught were getting depredated by sharks. And that's a really big problem in Florida and the Florida Keys tropical waters is the depredation um, of your fish on the line by sharks and other, other animals looking, looking to take advantage of the situation. 
2021, the Western Dry Rocks Marine Protected Area was established, and now all angling is prohibited in that area between April through to July. So you can't angle anything, not just permit, no full stop, no angling. This sounds like a great project with a lot of great collaborators involved. And how is this related to the research that you're doing now? Right. So the establishment of the Western Dry Rocks MPA is basically being looked at over the course of the next seven years. After seven years, they have the kind of opportunity to decide whether or not they want to keep it in place. Obviously, like I said, there's a really big fishing industry in Florida. You don't want to restrict angling for anyone past the point that it has to be. So my work is going to be to to look at the efficacy of the marine protected area and see whether or not permit are afforded enough protection or if the management actions that have been taken aren't necessarily that effective when it comes to protecting permit. So maybe they need more, maybe they need less, maybe it needs to be a different place. But right now I'm tagging permit to kind of build on the existing data set that we have to see how their behaviors and their movements have changed since the establishment of the MPA, which should give us an idea of whether or not the management actions that have been taken are effective or not. Right. And I know you mentioned this earlier, but just for everyone listening, you're using acoustic telemetry to track the movements of these fish? Yeah. So there's a huge array of um, acoustic receivers across the South Florida, the Florida Keys, and it's supported by a ton of collaborators. Like I get to work with people from Florida Wildlife Commission and Florida International University and some people from University of Massachusetts Amherst as well. And so this huge array is supported by a ton of people. And it's super helpful because there's so many receivers, we can really see the movement of these fish across Florida Keys and South Florida. So each fish is getting an acoustic receiver or acoustic tag, I should say. And then we're just tracking their movement all across Florida. So in addition to all the great projects that you've been involved with academically, I noticed that you have a bunch of research experience as well, which you touched on at the beginning of this interview. So specifically, you mentioned that you helped take some biopsies of marine fishes in Nova Scotia, I believe. Tell us about that. What was that research project for? Yeah, so that was um, the research excursion I did in Nova Scotia and we got to go and biopsy tissues for what ended up being a graduate student's work. And so we got to take kind of morphology measurements and we used that for like kind of like a little research project that we were just looking at like the change in fish size over time in the Bay of Fundy. But the tissues and everything we pulled from the fish actually got analyzed for heavy metal content, I believe. And I don't know what came of that work specifically, but I know that we we sent it off to collaborators at DFO and I think they they ran the data. But it was super interesting to just biopsy fish and pull tissues and sort of help assess heavy metal content in the Bay of Bunny, which is pretty high boat traffic. For sure. Some more great field work. Basically, you have a whole bunch of great field work that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of very different things over the last few years. So it's been kind of exciting. You've also mentioned that you've done some work with DFO. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so I was a student research tech with DFO for two summers. And the first one I worked with John Midwood in his lab doing kind of fish habitat, fish ecology stuff. And most of that was surveying Hamilton Harbor and the fish community there, which 
you know, we got to go out in the day and the nighttime and e-fish. And it was super exciting to see a bunch of very big and very small and just a whole array of different fishes that we were using electric fishing to catch. And that's part of a long-term study of Hamilton Harbor and what's in there. The exciting thing for me was we got to see a lot of eels and a lot of walleye, which I was told had disappeared from Hamilton Harbor for a long time and have since returned. So, you know, there's some good success there. And then my second summer, I worked with the Asian carp management group and we actually detected one Asian carp in Southern Ontario, which then kind of led us to a full invasive species response practice. And, you know, seeing the Asian carp that we caught, we caught a grass carp um, was pretty crazy. But the invasive species management response is also a whole other whole other thing in itself. Like we were out there with four different boats, like just constantly like shocking and looking to see. But luckily we only found the one grass carp. And so, and I don't know where that's gone since in terms of like more fish detections, but yeah, it was a uh, very interesting work to see. I'm sure those two summers must've been exciting for sure. Super, super cool work. Really great place. Well, Jessica, now that the tough part of the interview is over, we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that I ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? Oh, it's going to be kind of lame, but I really like permit. Like, I think they're a really cool fish. They're like, they're fun to catch. They, they look really cool. They're like kind of iridescent, silvery blue, and they've got some yellow and I've just really, really enjoyed catching permit and being able to tag them and like learning more about their behaviors and their ecology and kind of their importance to the people in Florida that are angling them. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I really had, this one's also kind of strange, but I was part of the necropsy of a stranded seal and it was during my field course and my friend and I still joke about it constantly because it was just such a wild experience. We were, we like came down to the research station for breakfast and Dr. Whitnick, who was running the program is sits down. She's like, I have a treat for everyone. Well, we don't have to do it if you don't want, but there's a seal stranding and I need to collect samples to send off to some research center to kind of, it's part of like a management and monitoring of seals and strandings and whatnot. So we all like threw on scrubs and went down to the beach and like picked up this stranded seal that had since been deceased. It actually had looked like it had had a shark bite of some sort, which is what got it. But it was such a surreal experience because we were just out in this lawn, like pulling tissue samples, pulling organ samples from this seal. And it was super weird and very different from anything that any of us had done. But it was a... it was it was really kind of cool at the end of the day. What is your dream job slash location? I don't know about my dream job. I like I hope to do something in the future that I can do research and take kind of some initiative over my own studies, but also still be able to do the field work. Yeah, I hope whatever I do in the future, I do get to keep going out to the field and also get just some more cool opportunities. So if money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? I think I would, I think I would keep tagging permit and like throw in more accelerometers and like maybe get some, something that can tell us about their depth use. When you're angling them, they come to the surface. 
But then we've also been in situations where we can mark them on a fish finder. We know they're down low. And it'd be kind of interesting to see like what their depth use profile is over time, especially when they are aggregating for spawning, just to see if they're coming up at certain times of day or how often they come up, which is kind of something I looked at with the turtles. But I think that would be something interesting to see for Kermit as well. If I could spend as much money as I wanted, I would definitely just keep tagging fish, see what see what's out there. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think if I'm thinking in the context of fieldwork, creativity is really important more than people think it is. Sometimes you have to do things that are a little sillier, like maybe don't make complete sense to make things work. Or if something's not working the way you want it to, you have to kind of really think outside the box of how things are going to work or like how you can come up with a solution. And just kind of creativity and resilience in the field, like it's not always pretty and it's not always fun, but at the end of the day, it's still usually a really cool opportunity. And if you grind it out and get things done, you're going to be super happy with the outcome in the end. Jessica, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? You can find me on Twitter or you can email me and I am at jrobishow underscore on Twitter and my email is jrobishow15 at gmail.com for anyone that anyone that wants to chat. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, creativity and resilience in the field is important.